Um, if you've been here, you know the series that we're in. We're, we're looking at Gary Thomas's concept that we all are hardwired by God with a particular temperament to engage in worship. And so there are certain conditions in which when those conditions are met in my life, it's natural for me to move into a posture of worship. And I don't just mean worship singing. I mean worship of being with God, of feeling connected. You know what I mean by that? And sometimes we can have uh, friends, uh, family members where they have such a different spiritual temperament and we kind of scratch our head and we're like, man, why do you, why does it like, it's like you, you worship God that way. And that seems kind of weird right? because it's, it's not my particular pathway, but it is, it is theirs. And so th- through the study of uh, different personalities in scripture, and how they engaged with God in worship through different church traditions, um, and then just through different kind of personal temperaments, Gary Thomas has come up with these sort of nine buckets that he says, I think all of us move somewhere in between here, and if, if your particular pathway, how significant it is maybe if that were a little bit larger and then if, if you didn't rate so high, it might be a little bit smaller, but, but that you would have like a profile and your profile would look different than anybody else's, like a fingerprint. And we, week one, talked about this idea. Well, that, that kind of makes sense because God has made us unique. He's made all of us, no two alike. And so we relate to him differently. And one of the goals is that, um, as I mentioned earlier, one, that I would have grace for people who worship God differently, but also that it, it would be an invitation for me to explore new ways of connecting with God and to not necessarily assume the way that I learned when I first started following Jesus, what I heard from my pastor or my mentor or disciple or whatever, the way that they did it, that's not necessarily maybe the way I need to do it. And that's okay. There's freedom in that. And so we've looked at um, the naturalist pathway, the one who says, just let me be outdoors. I want nature. and It's easy for me to worship. That's when I feel closest to God. We looked at the contemplative, the one who, man, I just, I just like to be by myself and, and, and to reflect on the idea that I am the beloved of God. And, and there's this kind of romantic streak with that particular pathway. Uh, Pastor Donnie talked about two different pathways that seem very different. Um, the the um, ascetic pathway, that's one that says, I'm, I'm going to kind of, I'm going to fast. I'm going to go into solitude. I'm actually going to withhold things from myself to help me more deeply focus and engage. We, and then he also talked about the sensate, the one who, man, I need my five senses stimulated. You know, I, I want to be in an environment where there's sound and smell and touch and, and taste. And, and those things really help me connect. I talked about the activist pathway. The activist, the person who says, man, I, I want to conquer injustice for God. When I'm doing that, I feel like I'm in full stride for, for him. And then um, next week, uh, Pastor Dick Foth, he's going to be talking about the intellectual pathway. And I, I, I like to refer to that as the conceptual pathway, because intellectual sounds like, oh, you must be academic. No, not at all. That's not it. It's, it's the one who says, when my mind is stimulated with an idea, or someone helps me connect some dots I've never connected, the co- some new concept for me, oh, that's when I feel like I love this. I want to pursue and seek God. And then tonight we're, we're, we're looking at the caregiver p- 
pathway. This is the person, or these are people, who like to love God primarily by loving other people. In the, in the, as, as Dick Foth says, <clears throat> you love God, you love a person, and then you end up loving God on the backstroke. <laughs> it's sort of naturally done in that way. So when they reach out, when they care for others, God just seems so real to them in their lives. When their hands are busy, making a meal for someone, picking up something for them, serving them in some just very practical way, when they're, do, when they're meeting people's needs in Jesus' name, God seems clear. When they show up to pack food boxes, you know our TSM does that every Thanksgiving, they show up and they pack all these food boxes for Thanksgiving. The, the caregiver, man, when they're doing that, they just feel like, man, I am making an impact for God and for his kingdom. I'm in his service right now, and it just feels good. I remember hearing the story, um, some of you will know Franklin Graham, he's the son of famous Billy Graham. Um, he at the time, he was the president of Samaritan's Purse in, in charge of uh, helping different ministries around the world, people in need, ha- having millions of dollars at, at his access to help with these different groups. And he was traveling with Bob Pierce. Bob Pierce is the founder of Samaritan's Purse and the founder of World Vision, who he was working with at the time. So these two powerful, uh, esteemed men were going to meet Mother Teresa for the first time, and Franklin Graham retells this story. And he says, they, they, they flew into Calcutta. Now again, th- these two men represent tens of millions of dollars that are dispersed throughout the world for various needs. And they showed up to, to meet Mother Teresa, and they were told, well, she's, she's in the last stages of, uh, of caring for a man right now who's dying of leprosy. And so they sent one of these uh, sisters in to go get her. And the sister came back out, and she said, she can't come out until, until the man she's caring for dies. And when I heard that story, I thought, now think of that. This is... Um, you know, this is a woman whose ministry is dependent upon donations and the goodwill of people, and these two esteemed Americans representing huge financial needs to help her do ministry, to help her do what God has called her to do. But she couldn't pull herself away from this nameless, faceless man, who no one will remember his name, even as we tell the story, I don't know who it is, who was dying of leprosy to go meet these two important men. But see, in Mother Teresa's mind, she wasn't leaving a nameless, faceless man who was dying to go talk to these important men because she said, I realized that I would be leaving Jesus Christ in a way. Because she said Jesus made himself so real to her through the eyes of those that she cared for. I mean, she was a caregiver. That was her pathway. Anytime she would ask new girls trying to come in and and become sisters, she would always say, do you find joy in your work? And if they didn't immediately answer yes, they were out. (laughs) If this isn't your pathway, she said, you need not be here. It won't be good for your soul. But if this nurtures your soul, oh, you need to be here. So here's Here's what I would like to do. Before we jump into this, and I've, I've been trying to do this on uh, most of, of these weeks, is I want to give a theological grounding. I don't want to just talk about an interesting idea. Uh, and, and, and this is a theological issue, how I worship and connect with God. But I want to ground this philosophically, theologically, biblically. I want us to do some biblical theology to see the significance and the importance of this that, that sort of gives credence to the idea 
that this is a spiritual pathway. So let me jump to um, Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 26. Is that large enough? Can you see it? All right. The creation account, Genesis chapter 1, we have God saying this, Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. That's a key word, that, that, that preposition. We're going to spend a little bit of time talking about that. In our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. <clears throat> then it switches to, it was plural words, now it switches to singular. So he, so God, created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. So this is the first place where we get, it's not the only place, this is the first place where, where we get the introduction to this concept of, of man being, quote, in the image of God. And so the, the big question is, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? If you go pick up a systematic theology book, the majority of them, the way they talk about what, it, what does the image mean, like what is that, uh, what is it, What's it contained in? You know what I mean? Like, point to it. What makes me being in the image of God and say, my dog Guinness not being made in the image of God? Most of the examples you'll get will be a list of qualities. It will be a list of attributes, a list of characteristics. Let me, uh, let me show you an example of what kinds of things those are. This is typically the kind of thing you're going to see in many, again, systematic theology books. The image of God consists in attributes, and sometimes there's 12, sometimes there's 15, sometimes there's three different theologians will propose different ones, but they will say things like consciousness. You know, just the existence of human consciousness is somehow proposed as being the thing that we call the image of God. Others will say um, there's self-awareness or sentience. Uh, there's intelligence or rationality. Uh, emotions are suggested at times. The idea of possessing an internal uh, soul or spirit, you know, the immaterial part of you. Uh, there's conscience, the sense of right and wrong. There's the ability to communicate. Sometimes people will say the ability to pray, to communicate to God, not just to people, but, but to God. Um, you'll find this very common. I would suggest to you that all of these fail, <laughs> that the image of God does not consist in any one of these things. And I'm not going to give you like, it's the seventh one. It, you know, it's a new one that no one knows about. It's, it's, a, it's a different concept. And I would say this is important for, for ethics, for biblical ethics. Um, the reason why it fails is several fold. Let me give you some examples, and you'll probably think of some reason why, oh, this one doesn't meet that standard, and you kind of, you know, cross it off in your mind. Number one is, whatever it is has to be present equally among all humans in all stages of life. You see any up there that don't meet that? Think of the entire human life, okay, from conception to death. Are there any of these that, that do not... Um, equally exist in every single human being. 
there are. Um, it cannot be said that some of these things are actually present in some people. What about, um, well, let me give you another one. It also would need to be un unique to humans, meaning my dog Guinness can't be part of it, okay? Like he can't. <laughs> um, is there, are, there, are there any of these things, self-awareness, how about consciousness? Um, do animals have emotions? There's a whole field of animal cognition. It's a whole field of study. Um, and, you know, they teach a gorilla sign language, and then sometimes they're able to actually put together brand new sentences using those pieces. I mean, that's a level of intelligence, of, of some level of reason. So for a number of reasons, I would say that these things fail. Um, another example is um, the image of God, it's not, there, there's no idea in the Bible that it's gained incrementally. You don't begin to get it. Problem is, most of these things up here, except, except for soul and spirit, I suppose, are connected to brain function. Okay? Is there ever a time at which you existed but didn't have a brain? Yep. In utero, at a certain level of development, you didn't have a brain yet. <laughs> or you had a brain, but it certainly was not self-aware. So there's no idea in, in the Bible that, that the image of God is sort of incrementally bestowed. You got 20% of it. You got four, oh, you're up to 80%. What about a person who has um, <clears throat> some sort of mental impairment? Do you know of any people who don't experience emotions based on how their brain is hardwired, if they're on a certain spectrum and, and they're not able to experience certain emotions? Are there people who, who can't communicate? What about a person in a vegetative state? Is that no longer the image? Do you see what I'm saying? And this is why I think it is dangerous, and I, I know many ethicists, I know many people who, who are pro-choice, who, who know this better than the average Christian, and they will, if, if you're pro-life, they will destroy your views on pro-life because they will give all these different examples. And then basically, you will have just made a very good argument for why abortion should be acceptable up until a certain point. Because you said, it's not sacred. Now, some people will say, well, it's, it's potentially an image of God. Okay, so it's a potential human. So it's not human. <laughs> it's not a person. If you tie the image of God, if you tie personhood to any one of these things, or add some more to your list, <laughs> you're making a wonderful pro-choice argument. Always. So I th again, I think both for our Christian ethics, for our Christian witness, um, the way that, that, that we are making our, our case to the world for why we should have a pro-life view of humanity <clears throat> is that we not tie it to any one of these. And I don't think the Bible ties it. The Bible does not tie it to any one of these things. <clears throat> now, you might say, well, what about the soul? That's a good one. Uh, soul, spirit, that doesn't seem to be tied to the brain. The brain dies. Soul or the spirit uh, exists. Problem. Genesis 1.20 um, says the, God created the animals, the living things. You know what the word used there is? The nephesh, the souls. It refers to animals as having souls. You go, ah, well, the spirit. Spirit's different. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says animals have spirits. <laughs> and soul and spirit are used interchangeably in the Old Testament. They are absolutely, they're just, they're two ways of talking about uh, the will, rational thoughts, the inner person and that sort of thing. So those fail too. 
<laughs> those don't work because those don't distinguish us from the animals <clears throat> in any way. <clears throat> so what is the image of God? Well, let's go back to Genesis chapter 1, and um, here's, I think, where we have the key idea. Um, it's, it's about the preposition I-N. <laughs> it kind of hangs on that. <clears throat> um, it's, we're told God created humankind in the image of God. Now, in English, the preposition in can be used in many ways, and it's the exact same thing in Hebrew, according to Hebrew scholars. It works the exact same way. Let me give you some examples. If I say, put the dishes in the sink, what does in denote? Location, right there, <laughs> in the sink. If I say, I broke the vase in pieces, is that location? No. Yeah, it denotes a result, right? If I say, um, I wrote the letter in pencil, is that location? Could be result. It really has to do with the instrument I used, instrumentality, or the means by which I did it, right? Uh, there are many other, you know, uh, pl please respond, um, you know, in response to this, do that. I mean, there's many, many examples. In has, it, it denotes different things, right? Let me give you a last one. If I say this, um, <clears throat> I work in medicine. I work in education. I work in ministry. Is that location? Is it result? It's function, right? If I say I work in medicine, I'm saying, I'm a doctor, or I'm a PA, or I'm a nurse, right? If I work in education, I'm saying oh, I'm a teacher, I'm an administrator, I'm a... If I work in ministry, oh, maybe I'm a missionary, I'm a pastor, I'm a... Do you get what I'm saying? This in here, and <clears throat> let me just... Uh, see if I can find this one. Let me read for you this, lest you think I'm making this up. <laughs> the Lexham Bible Dictionary, under image of God, reads this. The rules of Hebrew grammar... The, the preposition in, right, should be understood as meaning as, right, created as the image of God. In the image of God means as, it's function. Should be understood as as or in the capacity of. Humanity was created as the image of God. The concept can be conveyed if we think of image as a verb. Humans are created as God's imagers. They function in the capacity of God's representatives. The image of God is not equality. It's not consciousness. It's not reason. It's not intellect. Uh, within humans, it is what humans are. So, I work as treats the preposition in in a functional way. It, it denotes what you do your activity, what you are supposed to do. So we need to understand the image of God in this functional way. So when we hear this, uh, let us create humankind as our image, meaning to be like us, to function with, it's partnership, do you get that? He, we're gonna create partners. We're gonna, we're gonna have a family business. I'm gonna have a family, and they're gonna be about my business and what I'm doing in 
this world. So that's why I like using the term, we are, we are to image God. I think that's helpful because that gets to the original meaning. We're to image God in our activities because I think that's a good way to understand it. So it's not something that's given to you. If, if you were created as God's imager, you are by definition part of his family and you're supposed to be like him. And he has shared certain attributes, consciousness, reason, freedom. He shared all of these attributes, many, that he has so that you can work with him in the family business. Now, he hasn't shared all of them. Theologians talk about communicable attributes, meaning the ones that he can give, he can communicate. And then there are incommunicable attributes, eternality. Well, I began to exist. I I can't get that one. So there are incommunicable attributes, ones that he doesn't give us, but he does give us, in order to be like him, we do have to be free agents. We have to be free beings. We have to be able to exercise our will. That's part of what it means to be like him, but that's not the image of God. The image of God is a status. You've been deputized. (laughs) Only humans in this terrestrial world are image bearers of God. So it doesn't matter... They might come out with artificial intelligence or aliens from another planet. Fine, that's that's great. Our image status isn't based on any of those qualities. We're image bearers of God. We're called to represent him. Now, one one thing that people will often point out and ask about this, um, and it's very critical, when we read the actual creation account, it's, it's singular verb. Who... Who created Adam and Eve? It's a singular verb, God, he. God created. And what's interesting is commentators always point this out and they say, now in verse 26 it says, let us make man in our image. Did you notice that? It's plural. Let let us do this. But then when it happens, it's just singular, he. Who's he talking to, of course? Now oftentimes Christians say, oh, the Trinity. Well, no. He's talking to the divine council, his entourage. He's talking to the spiritual beings who are imagers of his, not in the terrestrial world, but in the unseen, the supernatural world. And what's, what's interesting, it links God, them, and us all together by that, let us do this. Now, here's sort of a good example of thing. If, um, suppose... When I was growing up, if my mom were to walk out, we're watching TV and it's dinner time, she'd say, well, let's make dinner. But then she would go make the dinner, <laughs> right? She would announce to us, let's make dinner, and then she would go make dinner. And it was for us, but she did all the work, she baked all the food, and she's this wonderful cook. This is what God's doing. He's announcing, hey, I've got an idea. Let's make other imagers with us. So they're going to be imagers because you're an imager, these supernatural beings, now I'm going to create enfleshed visioners, <laughs> and, and they're going to um, mirror me much like you do, and that's why it's so important to understand the supernatural realm, because it gives a template for how God thinks of us. <clears throat> so, this is the image that we get, and um, so what, what our goal is uh, as imagers of God is that they were told that they were to make Eden, I'm sorry, make the rest of the world like Eden. 
And Eden is God's presence that they can enjoy. It's his goodness. And he's saying, hey, I started a job, but it's a family business, remember? I want you to partner with me. I want you to now keep going. I want you to fill the earth, populate. I started it. Now you take over where I've left off. But you're my imagers. You're going to represent me, which means you're going to do it the way I would do it. You're going to do it when I would do it. <laughs> and you're going to do it with the same motivation that I have in doing it. Of course, we know that all goes deeply <laughs> wrong. <clears throat> but the reality is, <clears throat> this is, uh, we are still his imagers. So we have to understand the status God provides is how should we then live? Because this is the direct question that, that, that follows real quickly after I'm an imager of God and there are other imagers of God and you're all imagers of God equally. And you guys, this was a unique thought. You go to the ancient world, you go to Mesopotamia, you go to Egypt. Do you know who the image of God is? It's the king. It's the pharaoh. There's one. <laughs> Everyone else kind of serves his needs. And the Hebrew scripture democratizes it. He goes, no, 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 no. We're all imagers of God equally. And so then we have to ask questions. Well, how should we then live? How do we image God? Like, what does that mean? Especially post-rebellion, post-fall. How should we see and treat other imagers? Do you see the connection to the caregiving piece? <laughs> how should I treat another imager of God, what image God, what does it mean to image him? Now, we're lesser from God. We're going to fail, but God forgives. And of course, that's part of what imaging God means. So it's difficult to see how any facet of this could be, could be thought of as, oh, this is impractical. You know, biblical theology, it's always practical. It's always practical, studying scripture. There are so many um, illustrations you could bring of it. Um, would there be any racism if we all saw each other as equally imaging the same God and I, and I saw God's image in you, again, not by your attributes, not your abilities, but your status, that I know you are to function as God's image in this world? Would there be injustice? Would there, would there be abuse of power in companies and uh, nations? No. Absolutely not. Think of all our relationships, your relationships at home, at, at work, uh, school, whatever it might be. If we consciously remembered the equal status as imagers of God, and it's not just church ministry. Again, it's everywhere. It's your whole life. The way we behave would be different. And even after the fall, you know, oftentimes people will say, well, after the fall, I've heard Christians teach this, the image of God was um, <clears throat> broken. It was uh, removed, or, or I've heard some, say, some people say, well, it's only followers of God who, who bear the image of God in any way. Now, that's certainly not the case. So there are dangers to that, but, you know, if we just go even to, let me see if I can go, Genesis 9. Uh, Noah, after the flood, God, God wipes it out. The darkness of human heart had grown so uh, wicked, saves Noah, three sons, their wives. And afterwards, he says this, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man, and this is hearkening back to Genesis 1 and 2, as his image, 
bearers to function that way. So even afterwards, so God institutes capital punishment. And as you read the rest of the Old Testament, you get the examples of when capital punishment is employed in this scenario, not in that scenario. You get the legal code for it. But you get capital punishment introduced, not because God's violent, but because he says, it is such a grievous thing to, to intentionally, maliciously, without warrant, kill an imager of God that I want people to understand the severity of it. It's like nothing else. You're the only imagers of God in the world. So it's, it's a sacred nature is the point. Being human is sacred. And the New Testament picks up on some of these very things. Listen to uh, 1 John 3.14. John writes this, we know that we have passed out of death, which means separation from, from God, into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love care for other image bearers, abides in death, meaning you're separated from God. Or down in verse 17, we read this, but if anyone has the world's goods, so you've got property, you've got stuff, you, you ha- you're not bankrupt and poor, and sees his brother, image bearer, in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Do you see how the authors are connecting? If you love God, you love God's image. <laughs> and every time you look at another person, you better know that's God's image. So you have to. That's why you can't do this and not this is the connection, the point that's being made here. Um, look at Philippians 2, 3 through 4. We read this. The, the author says, uh, do nothing from selfish ambition excuse me, or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Why would you do that? Because they're an image bearer of God. Or Hebrews 10, I'm sorry, Hebrews 6.10, we read, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him. Well, how did you show him love? It explains, as you've helped his people and continue to help them. Isn't that interesting? It's, it's like that famous passage. You've, you probably remember this one. Jesus, he says, on that day when the final day of the Lord comes, judgment is is past, post-resurrection, and he says, on that day, I'll say to people, man, I was in prison, and you you came and visited me. Man, I was hungry, and you fed me, and and, and people would scratch their head and go, I don't don't remember that. Like, when did I do that? And then he says, the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of Mike, because remember, it's a family thing, were adopted, he became human, making him human. So he's, he's brother to me in that saying, he's divine, he's God. And, and so he says, when you love them, in the process you're loving me, in the process of doing that very thing. So we don't have to limit our, our definition though to caregiving, as we think about the pathway, to just extreme cases, just relieving suffering, the caregiver temperament, it's motivated by this sense. Man, these are image bearers of God. They're so sacred. And I see that, and that, that's what Mother Teresa saw. When there's this man dying of leprosy, I can only imagine what he would have looked like. And looking into his eyes, and Billy Graham comes in, or Franklin Graham comes in, and that's, 
I'm looking at an image bearer of God. That one's no better. This one's in need. That one's not. Guess where I'm going to be? I'm going to be with this one. Because this is loving Jesus because of what he's done by creating these beings who are, he says, you're, I want you to function as my image bearers in the world. Gary Thomas, in his book, when he, he talks about what does this practically look like, like, like how could you lean into this, he, he gives a list that I think is kind of helpful. Helpfully, he says, what about adopting a prisoner and writing them letters? Remember, Jesus talked about something about that. What about helping a friend who's going through a personal crisis? Maybe it's a divorce, maybe it's an addiction issue or situation. What about lending money to that person who you know is in great need and that will be of help? Helping someone battling substance abuse. Volunteering maybe at the rescue mission. Helping an illiterate person learn how to read. What about donating time at a battered woman's shelter? What about counseling at a pregnancy care center? Working in a soup kitchen? What about someone you know, you've got the ability to fix cars, you're real good at that, and you know someone who has an issue with their car, and you say, let me, let me do that for you. Let me see if I can fix that. Maybe you know a, a friend who, who, whose house is in, not, it's, it's, it's in disrepair, and you have the ability to repair it. Um, making recordings for the blind, rescuing, or, sorry, researching cure for a friend of yours maybe who has an ailment or an illness, helping someone reconfigure his or her computer because they're technologically challenged, watching the children of maybe some tired parents who just seem tattered, maybe it's a single parent, providing budgeting counseling for someone who's, who's struggling with money. Maybe it's, maybe it's a meal. I just had someone who, one of the sweetest people in our church, she called me the other day and she said, I just made you a pan of lasagna. I'm like, serious? I love lasagna. She goes, yeah. And I got homemade peach pie. I was like, oh, blessings. That's just wonderful. And she just made this food. And I, it's someone I know from church, and I, we'd actually talk about this, and she's like, oh yeah, caregiver, that's my thing. Well, she just naturally, like she loves it. Like I would hate to make you food, I'm sorry. But it's, it, I wouldn't feel close to God, it, it would be like a burden, okay? But man, she does it, and she's just like, oh, I get to do that. She wouldn't say this, but I get to do that for an image bearer of God. Um, in his book, uh, conspiracy of kindness, Steve Sojourn suggests that when, when we lean into caregiving, it can oftentimes naturally, without us even knowing, turn into evangelism. And you could see that, right? Like if, you, if you're naturally serving someone, sometimes things just happen. Um, with the Spirit's influence, there's, there's no limit to what your just service can do. Let me, let me read for you a story um, I read a book a number of years ago by Philip Yancey. He and a co-author, Paul Brand, co-wrote a, a, a couple books, um, I think, and I'm blanking out the name of them right now in my mind. But um, it, Yancey has said this about this guy, Paul Brand. And Paul Brand, he's a, he's a brilliant doctor who has devoted most of his life to like serving the needs of the poor. Brilliant guy. And Philip Yancey, if you know who he is, he's an author, he has, he has admitted that, Paul, that he, um, he admires Paul Brand more than anyone he's ever known in his life. Paul Brand wrote a book, a little thin one, about his mom and dad. 
Paul Brand's mom and dad, this brilliant doctor, mom and dad went to India as missionaries. Let me, let me read this for you. And he writes specifically about his mother, Evelyn Brand. When she was a young woman, she felt called to go to India. As a single woman in 1909, a calling like that required a truckload of faith and an equal amount of determination. She married a young man named Jesse. Together they began a ministry to people in rural India outside of the cities, bringing education to them. These were their needs, medical supplies, building roads to reduce the isolation of the poor so they could actually get places. Early in their ministry, they went seven years and not a single convert, nothing. No one came to Jesus. But then there was a priest of a local tribal religion and he, he developed a fever and he grew deathly ill, and nobody else would go near him for fear that you know, they would get the same thing. But Evelyn and Jesse nursed him as he was dying, kind of like Mother Teresa with that man in the final stages. And this is what this priest of this other religion said. He said, this God Jesus must be the true God, the most high God, because only Jesse and Evelyn will care for me in my dying. And then before he died, he, the priest gave the children his, his own children, to their care and became a spiritual turning point in that whole entire part of the world. People began to examine the life and teachings of Jesus. What would motivate someone to treat a, just a person and an untouchable, a lowly person, again, they wouldn't say this, as an image of God, that you would honor them that much? An increasing number of people began to give their lives to this Jesus. Evelyn and Jesse had 13 years of productive service, and then her husband, Jesse, passed away. Evelyn was, was uh, 50 years old at the time. Everyone expected her to go home to return to in, uh, England. That's where she was from, but she wouldn't do it. She wouldn't go. She was encouraged by her family. And everyone in the area began to call her Granny Brand. She was Granny Brand. She was the grandma. She was the one who was, who was baking the pans of lasagna and homemade pies, I suppose. She stayed another 20 years under that local mission board, served faithfully. Her son, Paul Brand, the one who uh, wrote the book and served, or uh, wrote the book, Philip Yancey, too, he, he went and visited her, and he said, Mom, it's, you know, it's time to come home. And um, he, he had this to say about her. He wrote this tiny little book about, about his mom, and he says, this is how you grow old. Here's the key, he says. Allow everything else to fall away until those around you see only love. I love that. She spent her life, the next 20 years, as a widow there. And at age 70, she received a message from her home office in England, England saying they weren't, they weren't going to extend her five-year stay because it's in five-year increments in the story. And they felt that she was getting simply too old, but she was stubborn. <laughs> there was a party thrown for her by the local community there for her to leave. They said, have a, have a good trip back home. She said, I'll tell you a little secret. She said, I'm not going back. I'm staying here in India. Evelyn had uh, a little bit of money that she had stored away, and so she, she, that, that she had smuggled back in with her. So she bought a pony, and she went up to these mountains where these people were very, very isolated. And this 70-plus-year-old uh, person would ride from village to village on, on a horseback, just tell people about this Jesus who, who thought they were the image of God. And she did this for five years on her own. One day when she was 75 years old, she fell off the horse and broke her, her hip. Her son, Paul Brand, this eminent doctor, said, Mom, you've had a great run. God used you. It's time to come home now. You need to come back home. She said, I'm not going home. 
She said, I'm asking God to give me this mountain. I want every person on this mountain. She spent another 18 years traveling from one village to the next on horseback. Falls, concussions, sicknesses, aging, nothing could stop her. Finally, when she was 93 years old, she couldn't ride the horse anymore. So she made a deal with the men in the village because they loved Granny Bran so much, they put her on a stretcher. (laughs) And they carried her from village to village. She lived two more years as a gift to God, carrying herself on a stretcher to help the poorest of the poor. She died, but she never retired. The other says she graduated. Um, and then the author makes this last comment. He says, you know, you, you think about logos. You know, Nike has, has its swoosh, right? And it's like the power of strength and speed. You look at Apple, it's got a logo. That's, you know, it's all about intelligence, smartness. And he has this, he says, um, if Granny Brand had a logo, it wouldn't be the success or smarts or pleasure or power. It would be the stretcher on which she was carried up and down the mountains to pour out her life in sacrificial love the rest of her life. When people are caregivers, I want to suggest to you that it's a prophetic lifestyle. You know what I mean by that? It's a prophetic lifestyle in the sense of we live in a, we live in a, not not just a culture, a world, where selfishness is the general disposition. People are generally looking out for number one, right? When, when you live as a, in the caregiver pathway, you're prophetically pointing to something beyond this sort of self-absorbed world and self-absorbed way of being human. You're pointing to the gospel. Now, let me mention, I've I've tried to do this every week because the author gives some ones. He says, I want to give you some warnings, some temptations if this is your pathway. There could be some ways in which maybe you, you're blind to some things, if this is your particular <clears throat> pathway. Four of the ones that he mentions, the first one is, is, uh, is judging, and this is kind of true for all of them, but for the caregiver, hands need to be busy. And when you see, like in the gospel where Jesus is sitting at the feet, uh, Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus, remember that? And the caregiver's like, hey, tell her to get up and get to work, <laughs> right? The caregiver needs to realize there's a place of, of just being in God's presence. You know, the, the caregiver might get fed up with the contemplative really quickly. So again, not judging others. Number two, serving ourselves through serving others. Um, the author talks about this, de- this idea. I love this phrase. He says, caregiving as a temperament means that we express our love to God by reaching out to others. Caregiving as a disease he says, it's, an act, it's actually an act of taking. It's an act of deception, expressing in love to others so that they will need us. You ever know anyone like that? I know, I, I know one woman who, she was sort of the matriarch of her family, and she loved them. I mean, she poured her life out. She served them all the time. But there was always this sense of like, well, you need me, right? You, I mean, you better... You know, there was this, almost like you owe me. <laughs> and you got the indication, it's like, I don't even think she's aware of it. But there's, there's this deep-seated act of taking in the midst of her care for her kids and grandkids and family. One, one therapist I, I, I read said this, probably thinking about this kind of person. Um, she said, I really hate it when 
women is she was she counsels women. I really hate it when women get involved in a volunteer organization to take care of, she said, you know, the great unwashed. Oftentimes they do it because they're not taking care in the, of the business in their own lives. So it's a way to feel, well, I'm, I'm kind of neglecting this stuff, but I don't think about it because I'm just caring for the great unwashed people in her life. Number three, um, holding a, a narrow definition of what care looks like. What I mean is this, a caregiver, I want to meet your needs individually, I'm going to help you. An activist will say, I'm going to try to fix the situation, the problem, the, the societal conditions, maybe it's a legal issue, whatever, that will then take, that you'll be free to, you know, have more self-motivation. You know what I mean by that? Well, the caregiver could look at the activist and be like, what? you're working on the long-term thing, we need to meet their right-now needs. And the activists can say, look, that's great, meet their needs right now, I'm gonna meet their long-term needs by trying to fix societal systems, right? So, again, not judging and, and, and saying taking care of people looks like this. Sometimes it's long-term, sometimes it's short-term, but there are those narrow <coughs> definitions. Number four, <coughs> neglecting those closest to us. Um, this, is, this is an interesting passage here. This is Paul writing in 1 Timothy, and he says, um, in our zeal to love God, we have to remember, guess what God makes the priority? Your home. That's where you start. First uh, Timothy 5.8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, not even extended, like in your own house, look at how harsh this is. He's denied the faith. It's worse than an unbeliever. Even unbelievers do that. Come on. He's denied the faith because he's saying, you're not really loving God. You're not even serving God. Doing all these things, serving other people, because God has entrusted you before him, any of them. He's entrusted you with the people who are closest. And if you neglect that, you're not really loving God because that's your first charge in the world. One of my favorite moments, I thought about this this week as I was thinking about this, is Jesus on the cross, we're told he's bearing the sin of the world. The physical pain is excruciating, I can't imagine. And you know one of the last things he does? He sees a widow. She's related to him. She's mom. <laughs> and in the midst of all that, he goes, John, take care of her. I mean, think about that. He's so thinking about others that he's like, I do not want her not taken care of because she's helpless. She's a widow. And so I'm going to entrust someone to lean down that path of caregiver for one that he had been doing that to probably for years, but I'm not going to leave her abandoned. That's the God we serve. That's the God that we're told to image. Remember Romans 9, it says we're, we're to be conformed into the image of Christ. Oh, that same language. It's picked up all throughout Scripture. We are to image, what is Jesus? He is the image of the invisible God. He's the full image. What is God like? It's Jesus. Look, you've seen, the, you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he says. And then we're to be transformed into the image of Christ. We're to pursue that. We're, we're to have the same mindset as Christ had, who though he was God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself a servant. He's saying, be like him, not on your own strength, but we're called to image Jesus, that's the answer to this question of what does it mean to be in the image of God? Look at Jesus. <laughs> that's what it means. 
And so over the next few minutes, we're going to take communion. And it's that picture of what Jesus did, that he's, his level of pursuing caregiving of us led to self-sacrifice, of his body being broken on the cross, his, his blood being shed, and then pointing to it and saying, I want you to reenact this because I want you to remember this is how much I love image bearers of God, that I would give anything, I would sacrifice anything. And so every time you do it, you, de- you declare my death until I come again. And so we do that. We do that weekly here. So I would invite you during this song, go to the tables, some in the back too. You'll take these on your own, in your own timing, as you would like to get the elements. You can go back to your chair or wherever it might be. And during this song, spend, spend a moment reflecting on the caregiving nature of our God. So spend some moments reflecting on this reality of you being tasked as the image of God in whatever setting, starting with your family, that he has placed you. How do you need to respond to that? What do you need to do? Take the elements, and then would you sing out this song? Let me pray for you as we go. Father, for my brothers and sisters in this room, God, I ask that we leave, we, we, we step into the rest of our week, into the rest of what you have planned for us, May we be mindful, God, would your spirit remind us of of the places, the people that you have entrusted to us, the influence that we have, and may we, in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus, care for the others who are your imagers. God, may we see them anew and afresh in a way that we never have before. And we'll give you all the glory. Thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Love being with you. Thanks for plugging in and being here in your faithfulness. Have a great rest of your week.